So I'm happy to continue with the uh, second exploration of mudita or sympathetic or appreciative uh, joy. And as probably most of you know, unless, unless you're um, just here for the first time in the last few weeks uh, with our work with the uh, qualities of, of joy and compassion and loving-kindness, I was inspired by um, four weeks on retreat in February in which I practiced the uh, so-called divine abodes or Brahma-vihara, the practices of loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, roughly a week each. And I was um, energized and inspired, and there were a lot of interesting insights. And we often practice loving-kindness, but we don't always practice the latter three. And so I was inspired to uh, offer these practices, and not just do it once or not just do it superficially, but actually take a little bit of time so we can have an extended period of uh, practicing with these four qualities. And we had started with several sessions on loving-kindness in January, and then in March did two sessions on compassion and uh, one on uh, mudita, or sympathetic joy. And so today I want to uh, continue with sympathetic joy Mudita, and next week, and the, I think the week after, uh, work with equanimity. And uh, I'd like to encourage us in, in, in our own ways, and hopefully I'll um, energize and perhaps inspire you to, and myself to, uh, to give some more focus uh, on the quality of joy uh, in this next week so that we can report back, uh, so that we really have some sense of not just coming here and, uh, you know, and listening and being energized, but also having this be the, uh, the starting point for practice. And it really is, it really points to the way that the core of this practice is really, um, it's really a training, it's really a long-term training. I think it's helpful to remember that from time to time. Sometimes we think of this as, oh, I should just be this way or that way. But this, this practice that we do is very much a long-term training where we get certain teachings and certain instructions and we find that the real action, as it were, is in our everyday lives where we get to implement these, these <coughs> principles and practices and where we, where we get to uh, find ways to make them come more alive day to day. This really has helped tremendously by regular time for practice. Because if we think of this as a training, then we really need, in a sense, to continue the aspects of the training and to remember the training, as it were, day to day. So what helps that? You know, there are different things that help that. Formal practice just helps that finding ways that these practices work. As I mentioned, uh, perhaps could be doing mudita when we are driving or when we are at a party or with our family. Uh, you don't have to do it all the time, but to just to do it in some way that, that uh, brings it to mind. So I think if we 
reflect on this whole practice as a long-term training in which we hopefully hear, get certain instructions, certain perspectives, a certain amount of energy, and then we, it's like we, in, in terms of this class, we go out for a week, out into the field, <laughs> you know, and we, uh, we explore and we see what works and so forth, rather than, I think that's, that's a model I much prefer as opposed to, I don't know, kind of the model sometimes we have of church or something, or at least one model of church, which I can't say that I, I know from personal experience much uh, because being Jewish background, I didn't go to church except when my girlfriend in high school was really into evangelical Christianity. And then, <laughs> and then I, I went to, <laughs> I, I did go for quite some time to evangelical Christian gatherings, which were, you know, a big place for, you know, and connect with the high school for a lot of the cheerleaders and the athletes and so forth. So it was kind of a little different little different social scene than Spirit Rock. <laughs> but that was, anyway, but the model, the model of church would be that you kind of, you know, everything happens on Sunday and then you kind of go out and live your life and you kind of get energized and inspired. I mean, that's a good, that, probably a lot of churches don't at all work like that. But, but, you know, there's a tendency to have that be a de facto model in American culture. Is that fair? Is that a fair statement? So we have that sense of training. And in particular, uh, this particular week and the last time, we're really considering this aspect of the training in mudita, or sympathetic joy. And what's really uh, interesting is that we can really uh, train to be more joyful. And so I want to talk today about uh, really three aspects of uh, the cultivation of joy. The first is some of the ways that uh, mudita works, mudita, this formal practice works, recognizing that it's one mode of developing joy and there are a lot of other modes which I want to also mention, that, you know, that they're just very everyday, ordinary ways of cultivating joy, being with children, music, nature, beauty, and so forth. Um, so I want to focus some on the practice of mudita. I want to focus some more generally on <clears throat> why it's sometimes difficult for us to be in contact with joy. How do we get cut off from joy in our lives to the extent that we do? And then lastly, I want to explore some, some of the aspects of what uh, a mature expression of the cultivation of mudita or joy might look like. So those three aspects. Um, then we'll have some, some discussion. And I really want to, again, set us, set us up in a way so that we could uh, take uh, an intention at the end of our morning together uh, to focus on, on cultivating joy in this next week and then report back. Uh, and we could have some of that report back at the same time that we get, have some new instructions on cultivating equanimity. So there are many ways to cultivate joy. And in a little while, I'll talk about why 
that's challenging or difficult. But it's, I think it's important to see that uh, joy is both a very general quality that we ca can cultivate in these other ways and that each of us have ways of developing joy. Uh, we can be in touch with what brings awe or wonder or a sense of beauty. Uh, again, can be just a very, very ordinary experiences. And part of, the, part of the practice of mudita really helps us to tune in to the joy that's there in every moment, both with ourselves and others. It becomes a way of tuning in to the happiness of others. Someone is sitting in a cafe enjoying a nice meal, you know, uh, a good croissant, you know, good croissant with chai, let's say. You know, the idea of perfect breakfast in the Bay Area, or, you know, maybe add a few other things, you know. And, and, you know, we might go by and say, oh, it's one of those. You know, we might, we might, could go by that person and have an attitude, right? Possible. You know, we could say, well, dot, dot, you, you can fill it in, right? <laughs> but we also might go by, if we we're practicing mudita, and it's what I found very interesting in doing it for, you know, for, for this past February, for a week, just doing, you know, like 18 hours a day, what we did for 10 minutes, uh, was that it just really is a training to tune in to the happiness in oneself and others. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful training. Again, it's not to say that's all there is. And what I love about the teaching of the divine abodes, the Brahma Vihara, is that this is all situated in the context. That it's, that the, you know, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself talking about the mature expression, but the more mature expression of joy is there in a person who also has the capacity to go into suffering and also has the capacity to have a lot of love and capacity also to hold it all with a lot of equanimity. So we're not really so much getting lost in the joy or thinking that's all there is, but we have the capacity and we train in the capacity to tune into that happiness of that person with the croissant and the chai. Or, you know, you can, uh, I'm actually going to go on an airplane tomorrow and go to the East Coast. And I was thinking just now, it's a wonderful place for Moody to practice to go particularly to uh, people meeting other people at the airport. It's a lot, you can have a lot of mudita, a lot of joy in the joy of others. But the training is that to train, to actually pick up on the, on the uh, happy aspects. Not to say that's all there is, but to actually be able to go there. And it's a powerful practice. So that's in a sense what we do with mudita. So it really works in two main ways. Uh, one is that this practice opens us up to joy in general. You know, which is very, very crucial. But the second is that it opens us up to joy in ways that go against major aspects of our conditioning. So it's not just opening to joy. See, op the opening to joy that we have in everyday life is great, wonderful, but it doesn't necessarily go against our conditioning. And so how does it go against our conditioning? How does this practice, which the Buddha in talking about the practice of joy, he called it the mind deliverance of gladness. So he talked, there are there liberatory aspects in this practice. It's not just feeling good. It's not just having joy. And in that, to that extent, 
it differs from ordinary joy. It goes, goes beyond in certain ways. So as we repeat these phrases, uh, there is a way, especially when we start bringing the joy to uh, others and start bringing it particularly maybe to a neutral person or to a difficult person and sometimes to ourself, I think we, I think in a way, we go against two main kinds of conditioning. One is to have our joy be more self-centered. To have the joy be the joy that I have for myself or my closed network of family and friends. There's nothing wrong about that appreciation of the joy of people close to me. But there is a questioning here about the boundaries that we set and whether, our, whether we're thinking that our hearts are somehow not big enough to have joy for many others. You know, so it really is that, that deep questioning of, of, um, of some of our uh, ways that we limit our, um, mm, our sense of who we are. Because the, I think the assumption linked with uh, mudita practice, linked with this joy practice, is that joy isn't just a wonderful quality to have, but that it actually is related to the depth of our being. That it's in a way uh, most deeply, when we're most ourselves, we have a joy that tends to be more universal. The Hindus talk about the basic nature of our being being sat-chit-ananda, having three qualities. Sat is being, chit is usually would be seen as referring to knowledge, and ananda means bliss. So it's saying there's something about bliss and joy in the very nature of reality not just a nice human quality or a nice quality that cuddly dogs have when they're in a good mood, <laughs> you know, but there's something quite uh, profound about, about that, that sense of joy. Uh, in Tibetan tradition, it's sometimes said, talked about the deep nature of our bliss body, you know, or in the Buddhist tradition, uh, one of the factors of awakening is piti, which is usually translated as rapture or joy. So one of the qualities of the awakened mind, the awakened mind and heart, is joy. And so it's taken to be something that's just right there when we are most deeply ourselves. So it's, there's not like, in that sense, there's not a scarcity of joy when we are most deeply ourselves. It's not like we have to, okay, gosh, if I, if I appreciate the joy of those people out on the street, I won't have enough for my family. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm wondering to what extent, it, it by definition involves other people, or are we talking about something sort of like mysticism, hmm. a sort of a state of mental being, yeah. Well, let me give a brief response, and maybe if, I, if there's more after I finish, why don't you ask again? 
Um, so this is, um, this is, when we talk about deeper qualities of our being, what's being said is that these are accessible. And that's where the training comes in. I think we know these deeper states in many uh, experiences we have. We may be at rest by the ocean and feel a deep joy come over us. And we might call those mystical moments, you know, where we might be listening to music <coughs> and just be in such a deep state of peace. But it's really the, uh, um, the claim is, and let's see, I think I have something by the Buddha. Um, he, he, in the teachings of the Buddha, it's taken that through training, that joy that is really quite deep can be more day-to-day and more normal. Can be, so it's something that we can cultivate and we can experience for periods of time. Sometimes doing retreats, we can have a joy. We can taste something <laughs> that's not dependent on circumstances, that's not dependent on things going well in order to feel that joy. And for me, one of the most interesting and direct experiences of that was, was quite ordinary and simple. But it was doing a longer retreat. I was doing about two months of retreat, uh, I think about nine or ten years ago. And I remember really distinctly that I was just really in love with the whole process of learning that was involved in being on retreat. Just really loving that. And it led to a kind of joy that was, that was deeper than any particular circumstances. And I remember one morning, it wasn't you know, huge, dramatic or anything like that. It was just a very simple joy. And I remember one morning I woke up. I hadn't slept well. I was really irritated, generally, that morning. And um, my body didn't feel good. My mind was a little bit out of sorts, and I felt a lot of joy. There was a kind of contentment, a deep contentment, even though you know, those kind of outer conditions uh, or inner conditions like my body and just how I felt weren't good. And I imagine some of us know that, that kind of experience. That was very telling to me. That was saying, oh, very, very interesting, Donald. This is, <laughs> you know, this is... Um, uh, because there, there was something that, there was a joy that was accessed that wasn't dependent on my body feeling a certain way, my mind being a certain way, or even conditions being a certain way. I was on retreat, so there were certain conditions which were, in a sense, quite good. But, uh, you know, up till then, normally, if I had woken up uh, not rested and with an irritable mind, I wouldn't have felt joy. You know, so there was something that, that shifted, that told me something about some, some deep capacity. And so this is, this is really pointing towards what I'll talk about some at the end. But there's a way in which when we access that joy, it can be there no matter what's happening, more or less. You know, that, that depends on our practice. And this is what the Buddha said. He said, live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. He was saying that one can keep access because the joy is more a reflection, is more about what our basic nature is and less about whether things are going well. It's something which we can access 
more regularly when we can touch that. That's, what the train, that's why it's a training, because we can't just come in here and do that easily. This is what the Buddha said, live in joy in love even among those who hate. Live in joy in health even among the afflicted. Live in joy in peace even among the troubled. <coughs> Look within, be still. Free from fear and attachment, know the sweet joy of the way. Uh, Andre Gide said it like this. He said, he, said we actually, he said we actually have an obligation to cultivate joy. So you can, if obligations go well with you, you might listen to this. <laughs> Some of us obligations are linked with other kinds of conditioning. <laughs> okay, here's what Andre Gide said, the French writer. Some of you know his, his work. I, I studied him in college. Anyway, know that joy is rarer, more difficult, and more beautiful than sadness. Once you make this all-important discovery, you must embrace joy as a moral obligation. <laughs> so so if, if, if you work well with moral obligation, you can put on your refrigerator, I am obliged to practice mudita. <laughs> 10 minutes, 20 minutes every day. So we practice this mudita. It goes against that quality of self-centeredness. And it's said in the tradition that of these four qualities, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, mudita or sympathetic joy is the hardest to develop because of that. It goes against some of the self-centered qualities more than the other three do in the tradition. And so what we learn to do is to tune in to others' happiness, you know? So we're there in the cafe and we say, you know, see the croissant and the chai and say, may your happiness continue. May your happiness increase, but don't eat too much <laughs> or something like that. Or we, but we, by my experience of doing it especially intensively is really to just have that be more normal. Oh, there's, um, there's something going well. May it continue. And so for many of us, it goes against the conditioning by the, by the extension. We extend it out beyond the closed circle. And the Dalai Lama uh, was, uh, thought that this is actually quite important for our own happiness because if we feel happiness beyond, if we feel happiness when we know the happiness of others beyond just a closed circle, the Dalai Lama said our chances for happiness are increased by six billion. It's a j- kind of a joke, but it's actually it's actually a pretty serious statement. You know, think of the mudita practice. If you just go down the, you know, go to the airport and other people's happiness makes you it reflects and opens up something in you, right? It it again not just not to make this something as we w- would say Pollyanna-ish. You know, this is. This is a training that is fully parallel to a training to be able to open to suffering. So it's not just saying, oh, that's all there is. It's all just nice things happening. It's really parallel. But it's a training to do that. It goes, it's, we may sit here and feel, well, that sounds really great, but that's not how I live so much. Or maybe it is. You know, probably in family it's very natural 
to feel something like that uh, when the family's working well. <laughs> uh, big qualification. So it, so it goes against self-centeredness. And I think the other, the other way that mudita works, it goes against self, a certain kind of self-centeredness, particularly when we uh, wish for the well-being of others who we don't normally wish for, particularly when we wish for the well-being of those we might have difficulty with. We talked the last time I was here about the fact that we often actually have happiness when people we have difficulty with have unhappiness. It's the opposite of mudita. It's the German phrase schadenfreude that we may know, the, which is happiness in the misery of others. <laughs> right? And so we go against that conditioning. Um, the second way we go against it is I think we, this isn't true for everyone, but for many of us, it goes against the conditioning to focus on the negative. It goes against the conditioning to focus on the problem, to focus on the suffering of a situation or the difficulty. And I was reflecting on this, and there's something that's almost biologically based that has us tend to focus on the problem. You know, it's like when safety is a big concern, as it is in some ways for all of us, but think of uh, an animal. When safety is a big concern, the, the uh, antenna, as it were, are always scanning for danger. Animals do that a lot, you know. They're scanning for danger. I remember, I remember that study that I talked about, I think about uh, last fall, when I gave some talks on the self. Do you remember the study? Some of you may remember the study of what the frog's eye tells the frog's brain. You remember that? Well, it's basically saying that we may think that a frog just kind of looks out and sees. You know, if a frog wasn't here, it would see Donald and see all these people in chairs. Uh-uh. What the, the frog basically registers four kinds of, of input. And they're not, it apparently doesn't really see the same physical reality. It doesn't see the same shapes we do. You know, one, I don't remember all four of them, but one of them is basically um, something small, rapidly moving across a field fly, stick out the tongue. <laughs> Another one is something, a very large shape moving towards or moving near. Something large moving near, which is a danger sign. So you see the whole biological um, wiring is screened to focus on problems. And I think that's, so I, I don't want to underestimate that. I think it's part of our wiring is to tend to focus on issues and problems. You know, when we have uh, pain, you know, it comes to attention. I have, everything can be going well, and I have, uh, I don't know, uh, my fingernail is ripped or something and it hurts. And that will take my attention, you know. And so there's something actually healthy, can be healthy in that and, and helpful. But it can also be a problem, uh, need I say more, that we can focus on the negative or focus on the problem. And I think not everyone does this, but I... I know uh, that's my conditioning. I mentioned last time I was here how we tend to see in Buddhist psychology think that we have three main forms of conditioning. We have the aversive types, we have the greedy types, and we have the delusive types. Right? And, but all of us have all three of these to some extent. And to the extent that we have aversion, we may, and I think maybe depends on our background and our culture, we may be conditioned to really focus on the negative. 
I know that's very, very true for me. You know, that I, uh, one of the stories I most remember in that regard is um, uh, when I organized, I co-organized the Summer Institute for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. We had about 100 people come. It was six days, and things were going quite well, but we thought we'd do kind of a, after three days, we'd do a um, little, I don't know if we did a questionnaire or some kind of survey just to check out how things were going. And I think we got, you know, I think we, of our responses, we had like, four or five people had really issues or problems with what was going on. And all of us as organizers, we went to those as if that was reality. <laughs> you know, do you know that tendency? Yeah. And, and that was very revealing for me. I mean, I mean, again, there's one thing just to deal with issues that have to be dealt with, but it's another thing to have those be the defining aspect of reality. Uh, and, and so I think the mudita really goes against that. It has us learn to tune in to the happiness for oneself. Gratitude practice, incredible. Incredible practice for anyone who tends to have a really overly critical mind. These are great practices. It's one of my own insights doing a week for myself because I think even though I've worked a lot with that conditioning, I think I still have that you know, tendency to focus on the problem you know, and especially being interested in social issues. Um, especially the last um, eight years. <laughs> That's my personal statement, not a spirit rock political statement there. <laughs> but it's, but that's, you know, it's, it's like staring you in the face, right? Or candy. Um, so I think the, I think the, um, uh, the mudita practice goes against self-centeredness and it goes against, um, the tendency to focus on the negative to, and really to uh, let us uh, open up to the joy, to the happiness of others and of oneself. Gratitude practice is beautiful. And you can just do it five or ten minutes a day and it will shift. If you have that kind of tendency to be negative, it will shift that over time. Do it more, it will shift it more quickly. So we both, in doing mudita practice, we both open up to joy and we go against these limitations. We go against this deep conditioning that um, really takes time. So mudita practice will tend to have the aspect of purification. But I want to give a little more attention to that first aspect because just opening up to joy is huge and is big. And I think, you know, reflecting on uh, my own experience, and I think for many of us, there are ways in which we, as adults particularly, have lost contact with joy. You know, if you had to reflect right now on what makes it hard for you to, con- to be in touch with joy, your own joy, or just having joyful experiences, and just, just take a moment to go inside, what, what makes it hard to open up to joy for yourself? could be a personal tendency, it could be, could be your upbringing or something in the culture. So what, what comes to mind? You can just speak out, uh, yeah, please. Guilt. Other people will judge me and I'll feel guilty for 
being too happy when they are not. Right. Uh, I can, how many people can relate to that? Like if I feel joyful, I remember this particularly being a political activist in a certain kind of culture. Uh, it was, um, at a certain point, I, among some, I don't think I bought into this so much, but among some of my friends, it was like to, to actually go to a movie and have fun was seen as a distraction from really, you know, you may laugh, but it's very serious, you know, and, and you know, among people who are very much into social service, there is a lot of guilt about actually having a good time oneself because people are really tuned into suffering, you know, so guilt can make it harder and that can be social pressure not to, okay, you shouldn't enjoy that, right? And again, there are various issues we could look at, but that's a big pressure. What else occurs to you? Yeah. I've had this a lot in my life, and now I hear it a lot from clients, is that this fear of if I get too happy, it always feels like the other shoe is going to drop. Yeah. That phrase wow. comes out all wow. the time. Wow. Everyone here, if, I, if I'm too happy, um, coming from a... Good knowledge of impermanence. <laughs> uh, if I'm too happy, it'll somehow lead to more suffering. Almost like the, the shoe, the other shoe will drop. So there's some, some kind of fear of opening because, like, if I get too happy, then when I lose it, I'll suffer more or something like that. Yeah. Beth, please. I, so if I get too happy or joyful, I'll get distracted, mm-hmm. yeah. or I, I won't be responsible. Yeah. I'll just be caught up in mindless ecstasy. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Yeah. Um, I think I have more trouble accessing joy when it's with someone else. Yeah. So. If I'm looking at the croissant and the chai, I'm thinking, I want that. Yeah, yeah. but I can't, I can't have it. I'm going to gain more weight. No, but I want it. That's what I'd be thinking. Yeah, yeah. so some kind of, so some kind of conflicting true. emotions. Yeah, so there could be a wanting in an extreme form. It could be jealousy, you know. And that's actually what happens. When we do mudita practice, by the way, all this stuff comes up. So what we're doing partly is we're charting out what we might find if we actually did this practice over a sustained time, these states coming up would be normal. So that's partly why I'm asking the question. So yeah, I would notice that I do mudita practice with a person who seems very happy and maybe a little more happy than me. <laughs> and, and I say, you know, okay, all these things are going right in this person's life and maybe they're four out of five things going right and I've got like two and a half. <laughs> and, um, and I feel jealous, or I feel I'm not going to give, I'm not going to reflect this person's happiness I want in myself. Or, or then you can get further conflicted by saying, I really want the croissant, but of course, not a good idea. So, any others, please? Marty. Yeah. Variation. Oh, oh, please. I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> expectation. Go ahead. Expectation. So, say a little more. Planning on how it should turn out. Yeah, and yeah. Not being able to, to, whatever happens, just roll with it. Yeah. So, so um, a sense of expectation about the way things should be happening can get in the way of joy. Sort of a 
almost, I mean, it may be related to issues of control or planning or um, almost like the overactive mind. I mean, we, in general, we could say that the overactive mind some, can, can shut off feeling and emotion in some ways and can manifest in a few ways. So, Marty and then Esther. Uh, <clears throat> a combination of um, being afraid that I'm missing something, yeah. that, that uh, I'm not seeing the whole picture, yeah. and uh, also of skipping steps, that somehow or other you have to earn the, the right to experience joy by going through the mire yeah. and climbing up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So some a lot of ideas about how joy should be or when it should occur, uh, and yeah, continually maybe some confusion about the relationship of joy and suffering. You know, like how do these how do these relate, um, Esther? Yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm happy, but in this area of my life, I'm suffering. I could, it could really be better there, and it's yeah. the reverse of mine. Yeah, exactly. It's making that, yeah. that shift. Yeah, it's, it's really good now, but <laughs> it's a sort of variant, really, of focusing on the negative or the problem. So we. Uh, Yeah, we can, and the mudita practice would then go directly against that. So, so some of the some of what we're seeing as call it obstacles to joy, are just general, Uh, and some of them have to do. You can see how some of them have to do with self-centeredness, with the way our minds work, and so they're in a way all addressed by a lot of what we're doing, mindfulness practice, other forms of practice. They're really addressed by those. Uh, But yeah, we can. The mudita practice will have us, you know, do gratitude practice, even though, you know, I have five major things in my life and three are going pretty well and two, eh, Buddhist technical term, eh, so um, they go not, but I, and I will have it difficult to focus on the three and I want to, you know, maybe it could be perfectionism, could be a lot of things. So I will, I tend to uh, not be able to tune in. And so the practice goes directly against that. So maybe the last one. Yeah. I, I think on this one I'm going to blame it on my parents because if you, <laughs> you know, both of my parents are negative and if you grow up for 18 years um, around negative people, yeah. I think that then, you know, you tend to see the, the world that way. And I know I have two kids and, and they seem to be inherently joyful. I mean, if they don't have that conditioning, yeah. you know, from when they were little, they they want to be happy about things, or if something bad happens, yeah. they'll go, yeah, but, and then they'll mention, but this good thing is happening. Oh, yeah. So, like, yeah. yeah, I didn't get invited to his birthday party, but I'm going to that guy's birthday party next week, so it's okay. So, yeah. it's, yeah, so I think it does have a lot to do with just their conditioning. A lot of it's in the family conditioning, a lot of it's in the culture. I was reflecting also that, I mean, one of the things which makes joy harder is just being busy. Overwork, being distracted, right? It makes joy harder, you know. Um, having a life where there's not much play, for example, you know. Uh, and so, uh, so there. But yeah, if we've had the conditioning to focus on the negative, it'll manifest in all sorts of ways. There may be, there may be um, 
certain pressures to be serious or could be in certain certain types of uh, joy might be really interpreted as something undesirable. And um, there could also be, I remember uh, someone reporting when we were exploring joy, someone going to, uh, going to work and being really joyful and having the, the boss say, wipe that smile off your face. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I saw you had a hand up, but let me, can we wait just a moment, a few moments? Because I want to just finish. So there are all these kind of uh, pressures. There are cultural pressures. There are personal ways that we've lear- you know, learned to not access joy so well. You know, and, there, and if we reflect on that, there can be a certain amount of grief that occurs when we look at that. So mudita practices, not just, not just light. So we practice the... We practice the cultivation of joy with the formal mudita practice. We can practice with very everyday and ordinary ways of practicing with, um, with uh, being by beauty, being in nature, being with children, being with people who bring us joy. We can do that deliberately. And I think both are really, really crucial. The mudita practice is particularly interesting because it gives this critical perspective on going against some of the core conditioning. Uh, and so I think it really adds that piece. And I think as we, as we do more of this practice, this, that sense of joy can become, I would say, more mature. And I just want to say a few words about what that mature expression of mudita or joy and end with this. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the mature sense of joy uh, that's captured in the sense of murita or sympathetic joy does tend to go beyond uh, self-centeredness. It tends to be more universal. It tends to be a state of our being that is really shared with all with whom we come in contact. In the Tibetan tradition, the mature expressions of mudita or loving-kindness, compassion, equanimity are called immeasurable. They go beyond normal boundaries. And so that's one of the aspects of an expression of mature uh, mudita. Another aspect is that there is an integration of joy with these other aspects of our being that are, in this case, are expressed in the Brahmavihara. There's an integration of joy with compassion, with loving-kindness, and with equanimity. And so I love the subtleness of this teaching that certain ways that joy just by itself could get a little unbalanced, could forget about suffering, or could be used as a reason, oh, I'm joyful. I'm not going to look at the suffering. That's how I stay joyful. It could be used like that. Sometimes I hear that with certain people who really express, just look at the positive, right? It's a valuable practice. And other people say, just look at the negative, <laughs> right? But in a way, we're, be, we're learning with all four of these to do all of them, to be comfortable with the difficult. In some ways, as in that quotation by the Buddha, to actually be able to keep that sense of joy or some contact with joy, even when things are difficult, not so easy. But it's really, uh, it's really a way 
uh, that we can see that kind of mature joy. And some of the people, you know, I think of people like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. or some of the people who really have gone, maybe we might say, into the bodhisattva path of really helping others. And for them to really sustain themselves over the long haul, they have to have a lot of joy. If, I just, so it's incredibly important for anyone working with people who are suffering. Have a joy practice. Really, really crucial. That's an expression of that balance. Because it really, because if one is doing professionally, doing compassion practice, then balance it with a joy practice. If you're professionally doing joy practice, balance it with compassion and the others. Right? So I love that sense of the balance. And there can be that, there can be that joy even with difficulty. Uh, I think I'll just close with um, two, two quotations. One is, um, one is from uh, a Jewish rabbi in the Hasidic tradition named Nachman of Breslov. Some of you probably know. They're, they're, this is actually made, has been made into a song, which I think I'm not going to sing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a very sweet, it's really, you know, in Jewish tradition, there's a lot of, uh, historically, a lot of suffering. And so how to keep that contact with joy is a big issue. And something that, a theological issue and an issue that uh, was dealt with a lot. So this is, this is some lines from this great uh, uh, Hasidic rabbi from, I think, the late 19th century, in uh, Breslov is uh, present Poland. I think uh, Western Poland used to be part of Germany. Breslau. Um, Friends do not despair. A difficult time has come upon us. Our joy must fill the air. We must not lose our joy of living. We must not despair. For a difficult time is upon us. Our joy must fill the air. You could, it rhymed, you could say, with a song. You know. We must not lose our joy of living. We must not despair. A difficult time is upon us. Our joy must fill the air. So maybe I'll end with one short quotation. And this, is, this is also about the very ordinary quality of joy. The joy ultimately is, is something that is deep in our being, that can, in a sense, resonate with the beautiful aspects of life in a very, very simple way. So this is from the Japanese poet Ryokan. It's about the freshness and the simplicity of that quality of joy. The bamboo grove in front of my hut. Every day I see it a thousand times, yet I never tire of it. So let's just sit for a minute or two. Other reflections or questions? Please. Yeah. Um, Donald, I was disturbed by your comments about the 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, not because they were right or wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you're better. So yeah. And I, I just needed to say that. Yeah. Yeah. So how? Um, let's see. Because I took some care to. Because um, I think that can happen here too. I mean, actually, in my mind, wasn't making that separation. I mean, I'm sorry if if that contributed, but I was really thinking of it. It's more like a. Uh, the, the point was more like a what happens when religion or spirituality isn't about training, when it's more about a social appearance. Because I, and I actually wasn't saying it, but that can happen here. People can come Monday night to hear Jack Kornfield speak and have that be their spirituality for the week. So that was actually in my mind some. Does that help a little bit? Um, and so I think it's something that, you know, I, I was thinking of it, and I didn't need to say church. I could have said synagogue. I could have said any religious situation that, uh, that where there's not a sense of, uh, and again, it, it, I don't want to uh, criticize it, so maybe that's helpful, your comment, because I don't want to criticize it, but just to say that it's limited. But it could be, developmentally, could be very important. You know, developmentally, someone hasn't done that. You come once a week and you get nourished. And then maybe the next step is to bring it into your life. So maybe that's a way to... But on the other hand, my hope was that maybe that could be... We could ask ourselves, to what extent do I do that? Right? That's part of the motivation. You're kind of teasing out my... What's all behind my comments. (laughs) So does that help some? Yeah, thanks. Please. Is all about is, yeah. is you know in the face of adversity, coming yeah. up with this joyful expression. Yeah, that's what it made me think of. That's right. Yeah, I mean that's another aspect. There, it's like uh, that's a joy that comes out of uh, suffering. It's like using uh, using creativity to transform suffering. So it's really. It's actually, there's a lot that we could say there, but it's really the, um, um, the power of, let's say, of uh, taking part of one's suffering and using various means, like art or poetry, you know, uh, to transform the suffering to somehow, or music. And blue is a great example, to, to somehow... Uh, create joy where there was uh, suffering. Isn't that remarkable? Yeah. Please. A question about joy and judgment. Yeah. In that it, it feels right, or I, I can easily understand joy in the sense of I'm going to visualize nature or music yeah. or yeah. dance or the person with the croissant and the chai or even offer joy to all people. Yeah. But the judgment comes in is, can I sit down and say, wow, I'm really enjoying your joy in shopping for the $400 bag or your SUV or the NASCAR that's going on today? And so I'm immediately judging their joy. And I suddenly was thinking, can I like walk in and say, wow, this guy's really happy on his snowmobile. And that is really cool. Yeah. Uh, 
that yeah. immediately freezes me up. And I'm yeah. wondering, like, how... That's a great, it's a, it's a great question. Everyone here, the question is about what happens if I do mudita practice with my third cousin removed who's really into snowmobiles, you know, and, and again, we have to... We have to be careful. Of, you're, you're, you, thank you. I wanted to thank you. What your name again? Tekla. Huh? Tekla. Yeah, for making your comment because it, it shows a lot of trust in our, our group to make that. Sometimes you have that feeling. It's awkward, isn't it? It's really hard to make. It's hard. So I really appreciate that. It's really important to have that be able to be present. And so it makes me a little more conscious <laughs> talking about snowmobiles. Or <laughs> okay. Well, uh, uh, it's a metaphor. Yeah, metaphor. Yeah, but but we don't. We have to we have to be careful because we don't want to. Okay, we're here. We don't have snowmobiles in Marin County, but I mean we have our counterparts. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, but the point's interesting because it's really like, can I have mudita? I mean, just generally, if the person is happy for something that I can see some problems with, someone's happy. I don't know because of um, uh, what. They live in a gated community. Live in a gated, yeah, and, and you might you might have some commentary about that, or you might they're happy because they're you know the stock market went back up, and you're saying, oh my God, well you know the stock market is contributing to the destruction of the earth. And, you know, how can I, you know, healthy stock market e- equals earth in trouble? You know, so some some might say that, and so um, and so a really interesting question because it, it really points to a few things. First of all. Advanced practice. You start with the easier ones, okay, and you practice where it's not so obvious like that to be challenging. But the direction of the practice is to be able. There, there may be two comments here. One is that the direction of practice is to be able to tune in to what makes another person happy, um, without having those harsh judgments at the same time. But the other aspect of it that's really important is that it, it, show, it tends to show the interrelationship of the four of the divine abodes. Because you could be able to tune into that person's happiness, but it would almost, that's, that's the case of certainly what I found in doing a lot of mudita practice, that in itself I do it with that more extreme example of someone uh, having joy in something that I consider not so helpful. Okay? And I can maybe tune into that, maybe not so easy. And this is where mudita practice is a purifying practice. It can bring up our judgmental qualities. doesn't mean our judgments don't have a grain of truth, but the reactions can be an issue, a problem. And, but it also can point to a uh, wisdom factor, maybe. Or compassion, you know, it might, I might be able to be there, and then it takes me actually, oh, what this person is doing actually, I believe, is harmful. And I can have some compassion for the person doing this with maybe without knowing, you know. Uh, and so we actually can go, just in that one example, I'm doing mudita practice with my friend, let's say, who's, who's happy in doing something that, let's, I mean, we, I think, I'm a little sensitive because your example to choose something that doesn't you know, trip up someone somewhere. <laughs> Not so easy. And is that, that's called being politically correct, isn't it? We're going politically correct example. So, um, but anyway, let's say I'm, some, I'm someone's really happy 
Um, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm happy that it's I'm that person. Yeah. Okay. Well. Anyway, let's say I'm I'm happy that uh, or the person is happy that. Uh, um, <laughs> got a got a Hummer for from the family. Okay, got a Hummer, which gets like. 2.6 gallons per, or miles per gallon, right? Okay, and really happy about it. And I'm, I'm saying, you know, the, if everyone drove Hummers, you know, the trajectory would go downward by about 90% more quickly, right? And I can, okay, so, okay, maybe, is that a safe example? <laughs> no. okay. uh, so, um, and so I'm doing mudita because the, per, the person really is happy, let's say. Our governor is happy about his Hummer. Okay, I better be careful. <laughs> and so, and, and, but then from that I do that and I realize, oh, you know, um, you know, having vehicle, that's really a serious issue. We're really, there's suffering related to this. And I go to, I tune into the suffering because I started with mudita, but from mudita I go into compassion. And I actually tune into some of the suffering. You know, and then I have some compassion. Oh my gosh, the people are really happy about something I think is, there's some delusion there. Or there's some maybe lack of ethics, I might think, or whatever I think. And I might have some compassion. And then I might also move to equanimity because how do I stay balanced with that? This is happening. It's a reality. People are doing this. How do I stay balanced? The compassion may drive me to act. The, compassion, the equanimity may drive me drive me, so to speak, <laughs> to, um, to be um, more balanced with the whole process. So it's, so it's really, um, as we do that, we see our own, as it were, stuff. And we also, when we actually practice, we can see how these all relate to each other, which is really, really interesting. It's probably the most interesting thing I found doing a lot of this practice, that, the, that in a moment of mudita, when I, it can bring up something which leads me to compassion practice, which leads me to equanimity practice, which leads me to loving-kindness practice. They don't just stay solidly on there. So be, give some room when you do this practice to the moving, moving like that. So maybe uh, last one, and then, then I think we'll have to close. Yeah. Um, I was listening to a tape where the Dalai Lama was yeah. talking about destructive emotion. Yeah. And... Um, they were talking about the concept of antidotes for different destructive emotions. Yeah. And I'm wondering what joy is considered to be the antidote for Buddhism. Yeah. Um, <coughs> question, question is about uh, the, there are many antidotes which, which more or less shift the energy of difficult states. It could be difficult emotions, it could be difficult <coughs> thought patterns, it could be being very judgmental and so forth. And I think uh, joy would particularly be uh, powerful when the thought process was linked with aversion. It would go, tend to go against that. When it was really linked with some form of aversion uh, to actually hang out in joy. So if we have a very critical mind joy would be very helpful. If a lot of self-judgments or judgments of others, uh, joy would be very helpful. If we you know, tend to have that go for the negative or glass, what, half-empty type of mind, it would, it would be very, very helpful antidote. An antidote means both long-term 
and it also means in the moment. That some of the people with whom I work on the issue of judgments with personally, you know, um, they find that having the ability to cultivate a lot of joy is a direct antidote in the long run to long-term, very old tendencies to be self-judgmental. That the um, cultivation of joy really helps. Cultivation of gratitude is an antidote. You know, so it's an antidote to self-judgment. It probably is part of an antidote to depression, you know, to, to a lot of difficult states because it really works towards more balance. Yeah, it's a very good question. So let's just sit quietly. For a minute or two and just reflect on what may have been helpful from the morning. And your intentions for the next week. Really encourage some form of regular joy practice. Five or ten, fifteen minutes a day, very helpful. Either mudita practice or just going to what brings you joy, being in nature, music, beauty, children, play, dance, and so forth. So we close by knowing that we do these practices and these explorations not just for ourselves, but also for others. And may what's been helpful from this morning be extended beyond the boundaries of this hall and of Spirit Rock out into the world for the benefit and healing and freedom of all beings. I'll just close with that short poem by Ryokan. The bamboo grove in front of my hut. Every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. So, thank you. And look forward to next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.